You know what happens when you flip a light switch? How many people, dollars, and computers are involved to charge your smartphone? Do you understand the policy implications, political landmines, and local issues as we transition to clean energy? Well, we're here to answer those questions and more. Welcome to No Power. Hosted by informed industry experts Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti, No Power is all about demystifying the entire energy industry without getting into the politics, getting you more involved in the discussion, and empowering you with knowledge to make an intelligent choice today and the future. Head on over to nopowershow.com or wherever you get your podcasts so you can listen and subscribe and never miss an episode. And now, here are your hosts, Noha and Michael. Hi, everybody, and welcome to season two of No Power. We are really excited today to be talking with Rob Granlick, who is the founder and president of a Washington, D.C.-based consultancy called Grid Strategies. Rob has been a fixture in our energy industry for quite some time here. He was at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which is the primary body that regulates energy markets around the country. He was there in sort of the formative years around the early parts of the 2000s as these markets were coming into their own, figuring out how to regulate them and to allow them to function. He's been very focused on clean energy, advancing clean energy policies through markets, but also on trans. Transmission. And we talk a lot about sort of the necessity of transmission here and just the need to make sure that we've got wires both to keep the grid reliable, but also to make sure that we're able to access the best and cleanest resource mix for the grid. Absolutely. And Rob has been around for a long time, really advocating about transmission before the Gates Foundation and others made it cool to advocate on transmission. Really excited to hear about his path. He was formerly with AWEA, so he really talks about renewables back when we were transitioning from coal to gas. A lot of deep knowledge and history there. Really excited for our listeners to reap the benefit of that. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Rob, thanks for coming and joining us. Great to be here, Mike. and Noah. Rob, it's wonderful to have you. Thanks so much for taking the time. You really have just such a depth of experience in this space and have been around really for a long time to see things. You worked for Pat Wood back in the day at FERC, who I really thought was a visionary in the space on things like standard market design. You've really seen us evolve now into the conversations we're having in the West and in the Southeast. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and sort of how that history casts a light over your perspectives today. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I joined FERC in 1995, and I probably wrote like three words of Order 888 as like the (laughs) lowest person on the totem pole there. But it was a heady time, as you both know, restructuring a $200 billion a year industry with a strong push from Congress in the Energy Policy Act, and then unanimous bipartisan votes at FERC for that, and then successive attempts through Order 2000 for RTOs. And then, yeah, I joined Pat Wood, who I was just so excited about when he came on in 2001, along with Nora Brownell to really promote markets and do the things that had to be done. We can talk about that experience. We did get MISO and SPP going out of that effort. Obviously, it didn't work in a couple other regions, but it was also a very heady and learning time for all of us. I mean, because we had all the best minds in the industry around tables at FERC thinking about what's the best way to structure this industry. That really was the beginning almost of let's call it the modern era for these wholesale power markets. You had FERC trending in a direction where they're becoming increasingly more market-oriented. That right was becoming their core policy. But then President George Bush Jr. signed the Energy Policy Act in 2005 and like took that concept and essentially nationalized it as sort of the national energy policy framework. And so you were stuck figuring out how the heck to take that and to build these things across the country, yeah? That's right. To Pat Wood's credit, he had designed a great market in Texas, which is still a great market. I hope, I think they averted too much damage recently. That's another story. <laughs> but he brought those ideas to FERC. And I had been active in some of the California restructuring earlier on. And a lot of people were working on different regions and other parts of the world. And there was all this activity all over the world about how do you make an electricity market work? In those days, I mean, there were fundamental questions about, does there need to be congestion management? Does there need to be a centralized spot market? Does there need to be locational marginal pricing or not? And today you look back and everybody just assumes, well, yeah, I mean, if you're going to have an RTO, you'll have locational marginal pricing and bid-based security constraint, economic dispatch, all the things, financial transmission rights, know how your favorite thing. 
in those days, those were all debated. What are we going to do? And I've been pleased that I think FERC basically got it right, that there is a effective way to do it that effectively became the standard for all those regions where they were willing to turn over utility control to an RTO. Obviously, again, two big parts of the country were not willing to, and the mandatory part of that rule didn't happen, but the standardization did get pretty far. And now you're involved in in some of the stuff that's happening in the West and obviously some of the stuff that's happening in the Southeast. Can you talk about the differences between then and now? I know that oftentimes we feel like we're moving very slowly, but just hearing you say, I joined FERC in 1995 and we were beginning to kind of restructure these markets and hearing Mike say this is the modern era. When I talk to investors on a daily basis, I think they sort of lose sight of how young these markets are. So I'd love to hear your perspective on progress. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty impressive how much different these markets are now compared to just 20 years ago. It was a major change from one perspective. The other perspective is I can't believe a couple other regions are still operating like with pencils and punch cards and things <laughs> and just have rudimentary trading and transmission service. So some regions have gone very far, other regions not so much. In the Southeast, they are inching towards more seamless trading. I think they see, like everybody else sees, the need to move power back and forth. On any given day or hour, somebody has a surplus or a shortage. And maybe you didn't even think you would the day before, but generator outages happen or load is misforecast. So there's all these reasons. So you end up moving power a lot across large areas. As we get towards a more renewable energy dominated grid, that happens more and more. The need and demand for that large power movement increases. So I think every region is seeing that because just about every utility has significant decarbonization goals. And whether they're doing it for carbon reasons or just because that's a big part of the economics these days, doesn't matter. They're doing a lot of wind and solar, so they're moving that direction. The other thing in the Southeast is, as you both know, there were some extremely expensive investments in certain power plants that didn't pan out. And I know it was just interesting to observe a lot of very right-leaning legislators in certain states saying, wait a minute, what kind of business is this where you get paid for a terrible error like that? And maybe we should take a look at this. I think they are still kind of looking at it and saying, hmm, this whole idea of Maybe a little bit more risk on the investor would be a good idea. And are there market structures, maybe incremental small ones that we can put in place to further that? Yeah. When you talk about nuclear plants, I think South Carolina is a place that comes to mind directly. They were in the process of attempting to build a modern nuclear reactor. It was a first of its kind type of project down there. And nuclear power under any measure is extraordinarily expensive to build. These are super complicated machines. It goes without saying you want to get that right. But this was the first of kind technology. It got to a point where they were literally three times over budget here with no end in sight to be able to ultimately complete this. I actually talked to one of the former C-suite executives at one of the utilities that was building that project. And apparently things had gone so bad for them, they were actually hand machining parts on site to try to build this thing, literally carving it out of metal down there. And the challenge was it became so expensive that ultimately they canceled the project and ratepayers in those states are still picking up the tab for all of the work that they spent up until the point where they pulled the plug. Definitely a tricky one. Yeah, a $9 billion hole in the ground to get some attention. Yes, it will, without a doubt. Yeah, and it's really interesting, Rob, hearing you talk about this business model where we pay you to take this risk and maybe we don't want the consumers to wear all this risk. And to me, that is one of the biggest benefits of having locational marginal pricing, FTRs. I mean, obviously, I know I'm biased, but it's basically being able to shift that cost risk away from the customer. And how do you think those conversations are playing now that we're sort of revisiting regionalization in the Southeast. What's your perspective on when we might get there? It does seem to be a snail pace in the Southeast, a little bit faster in the West. That's a little happier story that we could talk about too. I kind of see two things. There's the spot market, hour-to-hour, day-to-day movement of power where seamless exchange is really important. So an open, transparent spot market would be the ideal. 
the thing they have going there called seam, I think is not really that. It's just such so tiny. It's just such a thin little market. It's not even really a market. So you could have a spot market and that enables that efficient exchange, efficient dispatch. It also provides transparency and it helps with the longer term generation investment idea, but it doesn't fully answer it. You look at SPP and MISO, they have the spot markets, but they're also made up largely of vertically integrated utilities that are investing in generation into the rate base where the, all the same risks are still on the consumer. So you don't have that fundamental shift, know how you were talking about, of putting more investment risk on the investor. So those are kind of separate initiatives, both important. What I would love to see along with the spot market development is much more of a shift to competitive procurement for all new generation. Sure, you could have a monopoly utility run the transmission distribution and the load serving, maybe you have no retail competition in that state. But for the new generation, instead of putting it in rate base and then putting all that risk, keeping it with the customer, you could have multiple bidders. You could have all source procurement. It's a different type of competition, but it's equally important. And of course, that's where a lot of the dollars are is in the generation capital investment. Absolutely. So take us through how we ended up in a place where we saw markets materialize, like you said, in places like SBP and MISO, but we didn't get them in the West. So when we're talking about the West here, maybe just to orient our listeners a little bit, we're really talking about the Pacific Northwest down through sort of the desert Southwest and the Rocky Mountains. That's kind of the area there. So California ISO has been an organized market for a long time. Mid-continent ISO and SPP are sort of the, our Southwest power pool are called the Mississippi River Delta in the middle of the country. And then PJM, New York and New England ISOs throughout the rest here. So it's that slice kind of over in that portion of the West. When we're talking about the Southeast, we're talking about the Carolinas, Georgia, trending down towards sort of Florida. And then before you bump into the Louisiana utilities, where you start to see SPP and MISO begin to take back over there. How do we end up in a spot where we didn't have markets in those two corner pockets? And then how did we end up in a place now where we're deciding, wait a second, maybe that was an idea we need to revisit? Well, at the risk of oversimplifying, and I really do appreciate the diversity and the tapestry of the industry in different regions. I love interacting with each of them a little bit as I'm able to do. In the Southeast, look, there's some large investor-owned utilities that are the major players there. And they will say that, hey, it works well that way because we bear all responsibility for all things. We'll do whatever it takes, generation, transmission, distribution, do the whole thing and provide consumers with what they need. To me, that's less efficient because you're not getting any of the benefits of generation competition, which is a structurally competitive sector. So we need to look for ways to introduce some generation competition in the Southeast. But I think the recent uptick in interest in some regionalization in the Southeast, again, is this movement towards renewable energy. So wind and solar, you got to move more power around across large areas, number one. And, and number two, just the attention around these investments that went awry. And I think policymakers on both sides of the aisle saying, wait a minute, there's something wrong with this structure. So again, not leading to radical overhaul by any stretch, but leading to a renewed interest in looking at some options and interesting results from studies like the Brattle study for South Carolina statutorily mandated study finds incredible benefits of Carolina's joining PJM, for example. So that's the Southeast. In the West, different region, different issues. There's a lot of large public power entities in the West that are not FERC jurisdictional. And they have their own board of directors and municipality that govern them. They're 2,500 or 3,000 miles away from FERC. They've operated their whole history without really ever dealing with FERC. They'd never wanted FERC to be involved in what they're doing. And for many of them, their first experience with FERC was around 2000, 2001 with the energy crisis. That didn't work out well for anybody. And what's this little agency in Washington doing? Looks like they didn't do a great job there. So why do we want to turn over <laughs> more jurisdiction? When I was helping in 2000, 2001, 2003, trying to promote markets everywhere and get RTOs everywhere. There was the sudden reversal after the Western energy crisis of, oh, wait a minute, competition. If you do it wrong, things can go badly. So let's pause and just put everything on hold. And that 
literally it went on hold. It was on ice for 20 years. It's almost like Rip Van Winkle just went to sleep and now he's like waking up. And so here we are 20 years later and everybody looks around. Again, renewable energy is driving a lot of change. Every utility can do a little bit of renewable on their system, call it a pilot project. You can stick some solar anywhere. Wind, you can probably do a little bit on your system. For the first 5 or 10% penetration, you didn't have to do very much. But when you get beyond 10%, looking at 20 30%, 40% renewable penetration, then you got to look for the good resource areas that are probably remote. You got to get wind in different wind regimes because the wind is always blowing somewhere. So you get an overall steadier supply and it's sunny in one place or cloudy in another. So And you get that time zone effect from solar. So now I think all the utilities, and they almost all both public and private, have significant decarbonization goals are getting to that point where, oh, wow, we're going to have to regionalize. And by the way, every state has a very different resource mix and nobody can rely on one resource. We need a diverse supply. So we all need to work together here and integrate a portfolio. And I really think that's driving a lot of interest across the West. There's a little bit of an issue with the politically redder states versus California and the coastal states. So, you know, different paces of that and also a little bit of resentment. California's not buying my resource that I want to sell them. But still, I think regardless of politics, there's so much wind and solar going on across the West. I think that's really driving regionalization. And if you want to regionalize, you start looking at an RTO. So we've got these proposals out there for RTO and market development. It's interesting that you talk about this and sort of post the energy crisis and promoting markets. And I feel like we face this a lot in the financial community as sort of this overshadow of Enron. And it's unfortunate that that was really, to me, accounting fraud that then really impacted competition in this space. And now you've got states really thinking differently about that. And we don't hear that as much. And do you think that's just because so much time has passed? Do you think that there's been more education out there? I think that experience of 2000, 2001 needed to get pretty far in the rearview mirror for people to be willing to move forward. Also, they've had now 20 years of experience with California having a market the energy imbalance market covering almost all of the West. And so I think a lot of positive experience to largely overcome that one bad year. And so I think a lot of utilities and state regulators are willing to take another look now and say, okay, well, if we need to regionalize, let's look at a market and maybe these markets can work because EIM has been providing consistent benefits every year. And I haven't followed this issue very closely, but I know that California has a proposal and then Southwest Power Pool also has a proposal for integrating these states. Can you talk a little bit about the differences and some pros and cons of each? California ISO, of course, is the only ISO in the West. So then you think of the whole rest of the West, you have a whole bunch of utilities and it's pretty much up to each utility to decide which, if any, RTO do they want to join. So California ISO got out there early with, hey, why don't we build upon our energy imbalance market, which KISO operates, but it covers most of the West, and let's make it an enhanced day-ahead market, EDAM, EDAM, and build a market based on that. So that is still out there, and there are certain very large utilities outside California that are interested in being part of that. SPP came in over the last, I guess, two years and said, hey, we can help here. We're right on your seam and the seam between the Western and Eastern interconnection probably long-term should be alleviated and we should get some transmission across that seam and markets across that border. And so we're going to be involved in the West. And they produced a plan called Markets Plus. And they kind of went out there to utilities and said, hey, join this. This would be great. And we're used to doing an incrementalist approach and working with our utility members. So you might be more comfortable in our type of framework. And so right now it's kind of before each utility to say, which one are they signing up with? At this point, they're signing up with just some like study dollars to participate in the next round of evaluation. Nobody's making like firm commitments, but I think it's fair to say SPP got a bit of momentum in recent months 
in terms of attraction to their approach. But again, there's still some large utilities that are interested in the California EDAM approach. Do you have a sense of what's kind of driving the preference for one or the other? You mentioned, for example, SVP seems to be taking the lead here in terms of some of the states over the West. What's the differentiator there? It's a little bit hard to say, but for those who are around back in the early days, it was notable and telling that when PJM was looking to expand and MISO's footprint and all the utilities were like, well, which one do we join? And they were jumping in and out which is frustrating from a reliability perspective that these, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you get these jagged seams and Swiss cheese RTOs, but ComEd, the Chicago utility joined PJM. Why they joined PJM? Well, they had all these low marginal cost nuclear plants and the mid-Atlantic prices were high and they wanted to be selling that nuclear power into PJM. These are the sorts of considerations that factor in the minds of utilities. It also, are they guaranteed to get their existing transmission embedded costs recovered by one approach versus another approach? Is there some type of guarantee that they will? That's another consideration. And their existing trading partners. They're used to trading. They have probably have firm transmission and power contracts with different parties. And how is it going to be easiest for them to keep that up? So each utility is in a little bit different situation there, but those are the types of considerations they have. And the way I understand it, neither market proposal actually incorporates a lot of financial products to really help investors. When do you see that coming? Yeah, you mean in terms of shifting transmission rights from physical to financial and things like that? Yes, or even allowing virtual trading so people can hedge some of their exposure. I'd be surprised if they're very far along on that. I think it's going to have to be step by step, getting the utilities to commit to be in, getting the actual... FERC-approved tariffs is important. Getting the utilities under a single tariff is a really important early action just to get single transmission service, remove rate pancaking where you have to pay a fee across each system. That's a good early step. And once they're under a single tariff, then a lot of things naturally come with that. But Noha, I'm afraid your stuff might not be on the day one job, but it'll get there someday. Commissioner Danley has been out there saying these markets may not be the best solution and they're not really working how they should be. And I sometimes just worry that this incremental approach to market design of saying like, well, let's just wait on these other things that are beneficial to customers and take this incremental approach while I guess there's some progress being made. Do you worry that that sometimes taints the efficacy of these markets? I'm not the one to ask about what Commissioner Danley has going on in his head. <laughs> I mean, you look at the residential rates in the Southeast, they're very high in four or five key states there. So this idea that everything's just working great outside the RTOs, I don't know where it comes from. We can guess where it comes from, but it, I don't think it's true. Then your question about the incremental approach. Look, I, I was there for standard market design. I believe I spent more hours on standard market design than any other individual person because it was my full-time job. And the Big Bang Theory was great when we had all the politics aligned, which we did in 2001 when Pat Wood started. But by 2002 and three, the politics were undercut by the, again, that Western energy crisis experience that turned all the Northwesterners against it. And then just the lobbying from Southeast entities then working with the Northwesterners led to standard market design getting cratered in 2003 because there was an energy bill moving and they had enough votes to basically kill it with legislation if FERC didn't kill it by itself. So FERC killed it by itself. It would have been great, but that moment passed and we didn't get it. And I don't see the Senate Energy Committee looking very favorably upon FERC nominees who would say they would mandate RTOs anytime soon. So I think we're kind of in this mode of voluntary RTO development. And if you're in a mode of voluntary market RTO and market development, I think you have to kind of look at the step-by-step approach and bring people along. And I will say that if you look at the SPP model, SPP took a very deliberate and arguably slow pace of RTO development, but it really worked. I started with a very rudimentary energy spot market, then got to hourly and locational and 
day ahead, and all those things were added, but not without like a deliberate benefit cost test and conversation with their states, their regional state committee at each step of the way before they took any further step. And it was very deliberate and it worked. I mean, look at them now. It's a very effective RTO. Sometimes they're getting 90% of their energy from renewables, which is really great. Now I know it's still vertically integrated. It'd be great to have more generation competition. And I know people say the governance is utility dominated. But in terms of physically how they operate the system, they're doing amazing things compared to what they were 20 years ago. I like your last point a lot there, Rob. I mean, just like you, we've got activities with my folks that are going on all over the country in a ton of different jurisdictions, all of these different markets, and none of them are perfect. There's not like a perfect example of of any of these. Some of them do some things better than their neighbors and vice versa. So there is this element of you kind of need to take what you can get in a certain sense, particularly in the context of it being voluntary, like you said. I also wanted to circle back to your point on rate pancaking, because I think that that's a good one for folks to understand here. And I think it could also carry us into something that I know is near and dear to your heart, the transition to cleaner, renewable resources here. So when we're thinking about integrating these utilities under a single RTO umbrella, what you're really talking about is being able to say that like you can universally move power from one place to another, without having to sort of cross over a bunch of different systems. And the way like I kind of think about this in my head to try to articulate it to someone that's not as in the weeds of this stuff as we are every day, imagine the difference between a direct flight and a connecting flight to somewhere. Your stopover, your layover, your different airport, wherever you're going. If you're like me, you try desperately to never have a layover anyway because of all the weird stuff that can happen. But if you imagine like, let's pick one of the states in the West. Utah is a good example. There's almost 50 utilities just in the state of Utah. So hypothetically speaking, if you wanted to go north to south through Utah, you might have to have 10 layovers, 10 jumps across the system. And so if you integrate all that together, it just feels like it creates a much more efficient pathway for moving power around the grid. Do you see that as being the case? Do you see that as being like critical to the first step in whatever we're going to here? Absolutely. It creates friction in the system to have to do those puddle jumpers at each step, but also just cost. I mean, you got to pay the rate for each one when the actual marginal cost of delivering power is close to zero, right? It's congestion and losses. And that's when you have an RTO market, all you pay is that marginal cost, the congestion and losses. And so it's a lot more efficient to basically eliminate that cost threshold for each of those steps and essentially pool all the power together. So you have seamless power movement within the RTO market boundary. And that's a huge source of economic efficiency that they are currently lacking in the West. And then the other aspect of that is the reliability aspect. Blue sky days, things can operate just fine. But most of the congestion costs that consumers pay is in that like 5% of hours where something went wrong or there's correlated generation outages somewhere or severe weather or whatever it is. And those times, that's when it really matters. And from a reliability perspective, I mean, we saw this with Winterstorm Elliott, and I think that MISO talks about this and their market monitor about how really inefficient trading with TVA and Southern with transmission loading relief really has put reliability at risk. There's obviously been such a strong focus on Capitol Hill and that FERC on reliability issues poster Winter Storm Uri in Texas, the Texas freeze, and then Winter Storm Elliott that we just had in December of 2022. And now that sort of colors our landscape of what changes we need to make. And you've got PGM and other large markets saying, look, we're going to have some serious reliability problems if we don't take action today. And you're working on some really interesting things with interconnection issues, so making sure that we get some of these renewable assets online, as well as permitting reform, making sure that we can get necessary transmission in the ground to move that power. Can you give us a little bit of an update on both the interconnection issues and the permitting reform bill? Building on the last conversation there, we see in these severe weather incidents that large movements of power is what keeps the lights on, what keeps saving the day. Winter Storm Uri kept the lights on in the planes from power moving from PJM through MISO and into SPP. And of course, ERCOT, Texas, did not have that opportunity given their islanded limited capacity situation. And we keep seeing that over and over again four or five or six of these severe weather incidents, it's that interregional transmission that keeps saving the day. What do you do about that if you're a policymaker, if you're at FERC, 
I think you have to look at it and try to encourage interregional transmission and planning. And if you're in Congress, you're paying attention to that too. And there's been a lot of discussion about interregional transmission planning and interregional minimum transfer requirements, which they actually have in Europe. Each neighboring utility has to have a minimum amount of capacity between it for reliability reasons, and also they're decarbonizing too and finding they need to regionalize their power portfolio. So they're doing that over there, and it's in a few bills here in Congress. And for those who are kind of reading the news about the debt ceiling bill, this minimum transfer idea got plucked out of a relatively obscure place with bills that hadn't (laughs) even been introduced, like from Senator Hickenlooper and Representative Peters in the House. And it got in. They had discussions with McCarthy and Graves in the House on this minimum transfer idea. And it kind of got pretty far along. And it wasn't objectionable like maybe some of the other transmission-related ideas in terms of House Republicans. And it's hard to find more bipartisan people than Hickenlooper and Peters work well across the aisle and had always been working on something that could work. And so it kind of got at the main table. And that was a pretty wild few days there where I mean, <laughs> the president's negotiators talking about minimum transmission transfer. Yeah. <laughs> from my perspective, I was just cheering just the fact that those words were coming out of people's mouths. <laughs> the one and only time in Hill politics that'll ever be the case, right? That's right. <laughs> I was thinking of this OMB director, Shalani Young, kind of saying, why am I being told to talk about minimum transfer? But it was wonderful. That's great. But of course, it didn't get in. All we got in was a study. So NERC is now going to do the study on interregional. And recently in a House hearing, FERC Chairman Phillips was asked, FERC already had this proceedings. What are you going to do? Are you going to slow down? Because NERC has a study. And he said, to his credit, I was very pleased to hear it. He said, well, we have our proceeding and we're still moving and we're going to keep proceeding on a parallel track and we'll look at any study when any study comes out, but we're not slowing down here. So that's great. So FERC has, of course, a couple other things on their plate and limited staff capacity to handle multiple nationwide rulemaking. So I think we can expect to see the interconnection rule relatively soon. It could be the July meeting. Everybody's checking the sunshine notice a week before each meeting to see if it's up there. But that'll be the first one out of the gate. And then they have the transmission planning notice of proposed rulemaking that would be next, I would hope. But we don't have a timing on that. He said it could be 12 to 24 months, but we'll see on that. And then they haven't proposed anything specific at FERC on interregional in terms of planning or minimum transfer requirements, but that would be presumably the next one out of the gate. They've said it's very important. They want to work on it, but they've got a little other business to care of first. One or two things on their plate over there for sure. So you've been a big proponent of the need for not just to rethink the structural components of transmission planning, like you're talking about with minimum transfer capability, which is like the amount of power you can move from one system to another, but also just the need for investment, period. We just need both a bigger, more robust grid, but also a more modern grid here to accommodate what's going to be, I think we would all agree, a very different system in the future than the one that we have today. How is that conversation going? I would imagine it's a tough sell in the place like a hill, It's weedy, but also transmission has huge dollars associated. These are really big infrastructure projects. Talk to us about how you navigate through that conversation. Well, I can't say it better than former Chairman Glick, who said, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And it's like that with transmission. Everybody (laughs) loves transmission, but nobody wants to pay for it. Sure. (laughs) Until you get the bill. Yeah. And so that's kind of where we are. I mean, first of all, look, I've been pleased over the last, let's say, three years that the need for transmission is so broadly recognized now. You didn't hear much talk about it three or more years ago. I mean, it's a little bit ironic that now it tends to be Democrats talking about it more because they have been persuaded now by a lot of us writing reports and everything else that if you want renewable energy, you got to have a lot of transmission, mainly the large-scale regional and interregional kind. That's nice, but it's ironic because 20 years ago when I was working for the Bush appointees, Wood, Brownell, and then our friend Jimmy Glotfelty and David Hill and the others at DOE, and then on the Hill, it was Senator Domenici. It was all Republican-led initiatives for 
pretty much the same policies. But anyway, so that's flipped <laughs> kind of just randomly. But I think the importance of transmission for climate and clean energy is now widely appreciated by proponents of climate action and clean energy. And Republicans, I don't think, have anything against it per se, but I think there's a little bit of skepticism. Wait a minute, if the other guys like this, maybe there's something I should dislike about it. <laughs> it's a little bit junior high school, like on the Hill. <laughs> what I hope is that people really appreciate, they keep reading these NERC and FERC reports about these severe weather incidents and realize, oh, it's that large-scale movement of transmission that keeps saving the day. And with our new resource mix, including gas-fired facilities that are very helpful for reliability, but they tend to have outages that are correlated with each other and in these severe heat and cold incidents. So look, no resource is perfect, but let's just accept the resource mix we have and realize, okay, not everything's going to be there when you want it. So this transmission is the best insurance policy we can get. I think that's why you had so much alignment when you had the FERC state joint task force discussion of interregional transmission. They were all, I mean, it was the biggest love fest I've ever heard at a NERC meeting <laughs> because that's the thing that brings everybody together, but NARUC meetings on reliability. And, you know, it really is a great investment. It's sure it costs money, but if you look at the dollars in transmission versus the extra reserve margin of generation you would need without that transmission, it's a huge savings. So I'm hopeful that NARUC and FERC and the regulatory community can really address that and put policies in place to get that large-scale transmission build out. You're doing a lot of really interesting work with the Gates Foundation, and obviously Bill Gates has put out some pieces on building transmission and the need for transmission, and he obviously has a variety of investments and also new technologies and a focus on nuclear on small-scale nuclear that could really be helpful on the grid. Can you talk a little bit about how those initiatives and the Inflation Reduction Act, how that's helping drive investors that might have not otherwise really paid attention to this until recently with the climate challenges, how that's helpful? Bill Gates and his Breakthrough Energy are doing a tremendous amount in this space. I was just at the EEI conference where Gates was speaking and Breakthrough Energy was all over that. It's really interesting. I'm a big admirer, but two things about Gates that are unique. Number one, he came into this climate thing not sort of philosophically committed to wind and solar or what the whole environmental community was focused on. And he kind of earned his independence and as an independent thinker, I think in the eyes of utility executives that way, like he started with nuclear before it was cool. Nuclear is kind of cool now. And, and he was doing it 10 years ago or more. So there's that. But also, if you think about him, he's a real systems thinker. And I've had the pleasure of being in meetings and he wouldn't have built an operating system and all this software if he weren't a great systems thinker. But you guys know certain people around our industry, they can really process how resource adequacy works and transmission and system operation. They just kind of get it quickly, like frustratingly quickly, like, damn it, I've been banging my head over this problem for years. How did you figure it out so soon? He got pretty quickly to the idea of, oh, wind and solar are very cheap relative to everything else right now. Oh, wait, they don't all operate at the same time and place as the load. Oh, you're going to have to move. Okay, yeah, storage is good, but we got batteries, the longer duration. Sure, let's invest in that. He's got form energy and other probably, you know, long duration storage. That'll be great, but we don't have that quite yet. So we're going to have to move a lot of power over long distances. There's only one way to do that. That's transmission. So like he got to transmission in like three steps. And <laughs> that's what I spent 25 years yeah. trying to get policymakers <laughs> to say, right, take those yeah. three steps. Couple of decades, but way to go, Bill. Nice job figuring that one out. <laughs> so we just need like other people to get to step three there sooner than they're getting there. So anyway, he's funding a lot of work in the area, which is great, including some transmission technologies. And I'm sorry, no, you, there was a second part of your question there. No, no, I just wanted to talk about how the Inflation Reduction Act, if that's helpful to investors that you're seeing in the space and driving these efforts similar to Bill Gates. So the Inflation Reduction Act has, of course, significant incentives for wind, solar, storage, hydrogen, CCS, and some other technologies. And that really makes it cheap for renewables and storage to come on. And I think every utility has to be taking a serious look at that in their portfolios, including the 
more traditionally regulated states that have integrated resource plan, like you have to factor in the current price as discounted by those incentives. So that's really going to help renewables show up in a prominent way for every utility, again, regardless of their climate initiatives, regardless of the state's politics. So I really think it's driving a tremendous amount of market interest from the buyers and then just merchant sellers, independent power producers selling, getting those tax credits and selling. So there's a little bit of a philosophical debate out there. Some more right-leaning folks will say, wait a minute, I thought you said you didn't need incentives. And the answer is, well, no, not to deploy five or 10 gigawatts a year. But if the pace of climate action needs to be much faster than that, then these incentives help get to that faster pace. And so that's a policy choice. And luckily, just enough votes were there in Congress to make that choice and pass that act. By literally just enough votes, we're talking about by the absolute skinniest of margins there. And I agree, scale is the challenge. Because I mean, if you're imagining some of the clean energy goals that we see, frankly, around the country, the Carolinas is a good example of this. North Carolina passed its legislation requiring the utilities under its jurisdiction to decarbonize completely over the next couple of decades here. You're looking at a monumental shift, huge amounts of dollars that need to be invested to get there. That's really, I think, where the IRA bridges the gap. It also creates incentives, as we were talking to our friend Brett White over at Pinegate, an earlier episode here, to direct that investment into different places, to domestic manufacturing, things like that, to energy communities, and to begin to sort of deploy those dollars in different places, not just the places that pre-IRA were the cheapest spots on the grid to plug in or something like that. It really is impressive how it's restructuring people's views on what are the right projects and how fast they can deploy that capital. I want to ask you, Rob, when I think about you as, when I think about, okay, who is Rob? So I'm like, cool, he worked with Pat Wood, he set up all these markets and things like that there. But really what top of mind comes to me is just one of the stalwart advocates for clean energy for a long time, thought leader in the space. You've been very focused on that for certainly as long as I've known you. Was that a by design outcome for you? Did you know all along when you grew up, you wanted to be a <laughs> kind of a leader in the clean energy space? Or how did you find yourself here? Oh, God, you're going to bore your listeners here with what's in <laughs> Rob's head. I hesitate to even go here. But yeah, look, I've always been interested in the environmental aspect of this. I literally grew up with asthma near a coal plant and started asking questions when I was like high school and college of, wait a minute, why can't we choose our own power? Why am I forced to buy the power from the thing that's polluting my air? I didn't like that. I have a little bit of a pro-market streak and it's not really libertarian, but it's more like people should be able to choose what they want. California started in 1993 when I started graduate school there looking at green choice options. That was part of the restructuring. Of course, they screwed up some parts of their restructuring. But the prospect of people being able to choose the type of power they want, and I knew what I wanted. I didn't necessarily want to force that on everybody else, but like I wanted to be part of that. Let's get more choice out there. So that's kind of how I got into it. And coming out of graduate school in 95, everybody was saying, well, the jurisdiction for all this stuff is going to this agency you've never heard of in Washington <laughs> called FERC. And so yep. I went to FERC. I was like, I felt like so... I don't know, culturally a misfit when I entered, but I did. I was a good soldier. I learned from all the people who'd been there for decades doing rates and all the process and Section 205 and 206 and all the things. And here we are, however many 25 years later, this stuff is red hot and everybody cares about this and how FERC operates and transmission and power markets and clean energy. And it's great. So I'm, I'm loving it now that this is what everybody's focused on. Do you think 10 years ago when you saw some of this stuff coming, but it wasn't progressing as fast as we wanted it to be, was that frustrating for you? Is this now sort of like the fruition of your work a little bit? I've had a bit part sitting behind a FERC chairman and passing notes and doing lots of things. <laughs> but I think a lot of people have been doing good work to promote competition, to promote clean energy. I spent a lot of time starting 20 years ago with groups like the Energy Systems Integration Group, ESIG, they're still out there. They had a different name then, but they had all the engineers from utilities who were actually looking at the practical engineering aspects of high penetration renewables. And there were 
a lot of implications on ancillary services and voltage ride through requirements and interconnection standards and all the things, which was intellectually fascinating. But you go to a couple of ESIG meetings and you realize, wow, there's a different way for this system to operate. It's a much more large regional power pool type system compared to the industry's history of 3,000 utilities all around the country, each being like a tiny corner on average, a tiny corner of a state. I have that conversation almost daily up on the hill these days. They're like, why isn't somebody just fixing? Why are you saying this is a problem? Why doesn't just the industry fix it? Which is kind of how I feel about like telecom, because I don't know <laughs> crap about <laughs> telecom. I just, I'm like, just deal with it. Just do yeah. your job. Sort it out. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I get that sense from Hill staff. Can't that just the utilities just do their job? Many of them want to, but like think about 3,000 utilities around the country. That's how they grew up. And now try to build an interstate highway that goes across three dozen of them. How are you supposed to permit and pay for that interstate highway crossing three dozen of those utilities if you don't have some type of regional planning and cost allocation? And a methodology that is just in place. I feel like the formulaic nature of that methodology needs to be huge. Everybody can just say, okay, listen, this is what it's going to cost. And this is the approach that we're going to use. Follow the formula and be able to get there. As opposed to needing to go through like an individual rate case proceeding or litigate this. Like you said, across 3,000 of these jurisdictions, just to build that highway would take like a decade of litigating. You'd never get there. You'd never get there. Imagine if we tried to build a highway that way, passing the hat. Imagine if we had a Pentagon, a national defense system based on voluntary NPR contributions, like they do the bake sale and you send in your money. <laughs> that's right. I completely agree. I think that's one of the big pieces here. I was at FERC when they put out Order 1000, which was really the last big transmission rulemaking. And we got a lot of criticism for it. I don't think it was as effective as it should have been. But I mean, there's still stuff that was recently still being litigated out of Order 1000. So I felt Really old and was particularly annoyed when Chairman Glick said, it's been 10 years since we've done anything on transmission reform. And I'm thinking 10 years is, is nothing in this business. You just got your last round of compliance filings two and a half years ago. I know, completely right. A hundred percent. That's why FERC needs to get these orders right. It's going to be five, eight years easy in terms of full implementation. That's a great segue, Rob, because one of the questions that we like to ask our guests is for you to predict the future for us. No wrong answers here. Think big. Let's talk 2050. What does the world look like to Rob? I think we do have regional markets in the West, probably two, just because there's got to be a seam somewhere and probably a more evolved Southeastern market in some form there. I think we'll get some transmission built here. It might not all come out of the standard formula of like a MISO style long range transmission plan. Some regions will have that RTO really lead the whole thing. I think other regions like in the West, you get some utilities partnering together, maybe partnering also with an independent company. I think they'll get some lines built and then the independents are poking around and we'll get some good lines built. I think we will expand just physically looking at the system. I think we will expand between the Eastern and Western interconnection. And we're going to have large scale movements modeling from NREL says we should be moving 40 gigawatts back and forth on a daily basis. Right now, we only have capacity for one. I don't know if we'll get to 40, but I think there'll be a lot. I think we'll also get some transmission in and out of Texas, both directions. Ooh, hot take. That's going to take a little while because just the current politics are still so driven by Winter Storm Uri, and that's going to have to get in the rear view mirror here for the next few years, probably. So that's might take a little longer, although there's one or two lines that could happen soon, but I think longer term that happens. It just physically, there's just so much economic and reliability opportunity and need for that. So yeah, I mean, I think it gets more integrated. Now it's funny, every time I say that and talk about, it sounds like more centralized and I think it is and more regional, but also there's a lot happening at the just distributed end. I do think there's gonna be a lot of activity at the end user end. There's local solar and as batteries get better and better, you can do more and more with local solar and bringing all that as well as 
hopefully getting our electric vehicles and water heaters and heat pumps to be more interactive with the bulk power system. That's a huge opportunity for efficiency there. So I, I think that will happen. That one will probably be much more like state by state, very different in each state because it's just it's all state jurisdictional. We could see some states being radically different in five years' time, but other states might take 20 years to have significant progress there. I do think that'll be really important to watch. Here's the other thing. Load is going to be much higher. And we know heat pumps, electric vehicles are coming. There's a lot of electricity. But just recently, the CHIPS Act means we're manufacturing chips here. They use a lot of electricity. And artificial intelligence, you think about every application, every time it's finishing your sentences or doing a Bing search or whatever, that's a tremendous amount of calculations happening. And that's a tremendous amount of data center load. So what I'm hearing from those companies that do that is, oh my God, even what I thought three months ago is way obsolete. We're going to have to build more of those suckers. So that's a lot of load. We're electrifying everything as we should for climate reasons and other reasons, but load's going to be way up. So that means all the stuff that you guys are doing, that everybody's doing in the industry is going to be that much more important. And obviously we need to do all that as efficiently as possible and use maximum energy efficiency wherever we can. But I think still we're going to have a lot of low growth happening. And so it's going to be largely served and supported by more robust infrastructure and with a lot of renewables and the cheapest renewables are the remote low cost ones out in the hinterlands and they'll be moving power back and forth. And so I think we're going to see a lot of that. Now, I know there are a lot of developers you and I work with who are saying, I don't know where the heck I'm going to put a project in New England other than <laughs> Northern Maine. Or, there's a lot of places that will be hard. But on the other hand, every time you get on the plane, don't you guys like look down and you see, you know what? This is actually a pretty big country. There's yeah. got to be more places <laughs> to put these projects. Or like five hours later, you're getting to your destination and saying, Seriously. yeah, you can put it there too. Every time I fly to the West Coast, I'm like, man, there is a lot of planes out here. It is an enormous place, isn't it? Obviously not even every parcel of land is dear to somebody, so it's never easy. But absolutely. I do think we'll have a lot of wind and solar. I also think we need firm resources too. And I think the current gas fleet is largely going to stay there and need to be compensated to provide that backup. And that's fine too. And maybe we'll have a clean firm source one of these days and that'll be great. But these debates over loss of baseload and all that, I think we'll have to deliberately make sure we have resource adequacy as we go here. And that means certain resources stay on the system. They may not operate nearly as much as they used to, but they're around when you need them. Agreed. Well, that was a very fulsome answer to our last question. <laughs> <laughs> I really love the way you're shaping up the world in 2050. <laughs> Good. Hopefully it's a bright future for all of us. Well, thank you. Thanks for taking the time. We really appreciate having you. And I hope all of our listeners enjoy. Thank you so much. Yep. Great to be with you. You've been listening to No Power, hosted by Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti. Head on over to nopowershow.com, that's K-N-O-W, where you can subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next time on No Power. No Power.